Amen. Turn to John chapter 18 this morning. And something that I am so thankful for is the Word of God that renews and restores and blesses my life. And I don't know about you, but we've been going through the book of John. And we've been seeing this relationship that Jesus has with His people. There's been times that that relationship has been frustrating, hasn't it? But we have seen it build and grow over time. And what we're seeing is today that it's going to, it's going to start to culminate into something. It, it's culminating into his purpose of why he came. And Jesus always walked in purpose. But Jesus came to the earth specifically to transform and call people unto him. And it was going to be complete through the act of the next three Sundays that we're going to talk about. You know, next Sunday's Palm Sunday, and we're already well past that in the book of John. But what we can see is we are getting excited. There's, there's momentum building to that moment that he takes the sins of mankind. And I don't know about you, but that excites me. It makes me sorrowful, but it excites me. Because I know that we can stand here as free men and women... Because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. And you know, today what we're going to do, we're going to do things a little different. Because what I wanted to do, I read this and I'm like, oh man, I want to just read them the whole chapter. Because how can you not read this and get emotional over who Jesus Christ is? And what he went through. But we're going to be highlighting three main parts of our text today. And so we are going to read the bulk of the chapter, but after Jesus' arrest, he was taken before the high priest. And we have read about several of the Jewish council and the Pharisees that during Jesus' ministry, that, that they confronted him, they dealt with him. Some snuck in private just to meet with him and have him answer their questions like Nicodemus. So, so there are all these men he's been dealing with, and John emphasizes today, what we're going to see is he emphasizes the words previously spoken by this high priest that I think is important for us to read today, first off. It's John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. And I want us to read this carefully, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I encourage you to bring a Bible. Yes, we have it on the screen, but you know what? A used Bible blesses the soul. John 18, 12 through 14, it says, So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they took him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for the people. Now the intent in those words, the intent in the words that, that John is echoing here was not the same as Jesus going to the cross. But it spoke to the same accomplishment. The phrase, one man should die for the people. You know, Jesus in his ministry, he converted many, and he was starting to have this great following, and the reality is that they were threatened by his ministry. And they were threatened by where it was going to go and what it could lead to. And that basically it would, that their religion would cease to exist. And Caiaphas says in John chapter 11 verse 48 through 52, listen to this. It says, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. 
Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation be destroyed. You know, he's exactly right. Think about this. Without Jesus, an entire nation would be destroyed. And he might not have understood the prophetic relevance of what he was saying at that moment, but it spoke out truth that the generations that would follow would not be destroyed because Jesus Christ died for you. So today what we're going to do, we're going to discuss the actions of those closest to Jesus, particularly the main characters involved here in chapter 18, and why these words of Caiaphas are so important. And the first thing that we're going to highlight today is that Jesus Christ, he was betrayed. He was betrayed in verses 2 through 8. You know, Judas, uh, one of his disciples, had been plotting with Jesus' counsel to have Jesus arrested. And we're going to read about that this morning in John chapter 18, verses 2 through 8. we got a lot of scripture today, but it has purpose to it. Let's read. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. Let's pray. Lord, as the book of John is is about to end, God, all, all of this is unfolding really quickly. Lord, We stand here celebrating today. We celebrate you, we worship you, but we also understand, Lord, the great sorrow that is involved in all this. That, Lord, our lives are so corrupt that we needed this, God. And Lord, I pray for a continuance of your sweet spirit to fall on these people. God, draw hearts unto you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jesus knew about Judas' plot, yet he let it play out. He just let it continue to play out. When they were celebrating the Passover, Jesus made this very clear. I'm going to read it for you in Matthew chapter 26, verses 21 through 24. It says, while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has betrayed me just eaten from this bowl with me. Or, or one, of, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl will betray me. Excuse me. Now, can you imagine just for a moment a man who was in Judas who was once so devoted to following Jesus Christ that he abandoned everything he knew. He abandoned everything he had to follow him, and now he just sold his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver. 
And to me, what this expresses is, here you have Jesus, he had an understanding, he had to die even for a betrayer. He had to die even for a betrayer. And now I want to be clear that Jesus, he knew the anguish and the place of Judas' heart and everything he was going to go through, and he knew there was no saving him. Listen to Matthew 26, 24. It says, for the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas was under such torment at this time because of his anguish that that after the act went through, he didn't even want the money. He went back to the high council and he said, here, it's yours. They wouldn't take it. So he threw it and then he ran. And when he ran, he ran to this field where there was a tree and he hung himself and died. And I mean, the Bible is so clear that his guts split out and fell all over the field. And I know that's graphic, but there's great purpose behind this. God explains that in his word. See, because here's the thing that we need to learn and we need to accept from the example of Judas. He planned on getting rich by turning in Jesus. That was the plan. And 30 pieces of silver at that time would change his life. But he proved to us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And church, I am telling you, you will not find satisfaction in sin like you think you will. Because here's the thing, when sin is out there, when sin is present in front of you, and you see it, and it's not a part of who you are, temptation comes in and says, that's awful inviting. That's going to change you. That's going to make you different. That's going to do good things for you. Look how it's going to set up your future. And it has all these promises with it. And we're so tempted by it that that we gravitate to it. And it's like, just this one chance that I take will be life-changing. Oh, it will. It will be life-changing. It will change the course of your life. But now Jesus, on the other hand, even in the midst of betrayal, He displayed his love. Three times in this passage, Jesus exclaimed, I am or I am he, which echoes God's revelation of himself. And what did it say happened to the army that when they heard, I am he, they fell to the ground. They realized that they were in the presence of the living God and the power was overwhelming. But Jesus knew what had to be done. And even more important, Jesus stated in verse 8, Hey, these ones that are here with me, let them go. Let them go. The love that he demonstrates for his people is incredible. Because let's be real for a minute. If you are walking with me through life, and you were an accomplice to my life, and the things that I had done, and I get arrested. Church, I'm a man. I'm going to say, take them too. They've been with me. Take them too. Because they're just as guilty as I am. Right? Like, like they, they've been following me around. They've been doing everything I've been doing. I mean, you better take them too. Seriously. 
It's that attitude, if I'm going down, they're going down with me. And uh, yet again, this points to the prophetic words of Caiaphas. One man to die for everyone. So I want to ask you a question this morning to ponder. Have we betrayed God? Have we betrayed God? When Jesus told the disciples one of them would betray him, immediately they started chiming in, surely, Lord, not, not me, right? Not me. I, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And it's, it's easy for us when we hear that question to think the exact same thoughts. I would never do what Judas did. But something I want to illustrate for you is the calamity of sin, particularly when we have relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is significant because this is the Word of God. And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of scared to go into this because we can get really lost in the weeds. So I want to be very clear about something. First off, I stand here thankful for the grace of God. I have a close relationship with Him. His Holy Spirit walks with me daily. He's in me. I know Him. There are many that come to church on Sundays haven't tasted that. They might sit there and say, oh, I know Jesus. Pastor, I serve Jesus. We watch, we watch TBN in my house. I know who Jesus is. Man. Hey, every now and then we're in the car, we turn on Christian radio. Church, that ain't it. That ain't it. When the church presents something as salvation freely given to God by us, and while it is, it makes that obtainable grace seem so easy that we can just obtain it throughout the rest of our life, and we're good, we're good to go. And as a result, there are many who claim Christ that still indulge in sin on a regular basis. Okay? And I would argue those who are living such lives have yet to fully taste and experience who Jesus Christ is. Because when you tap in, like you could tap in this morning in worship, when you truly surrender your life over to him and say, God, I recognize that you sent your son to die for me. I choose to serve you the rest of my life. And then next thing you know, you start taking steps of obedience to follow out after him. You are going to see that your life begins to change. Church, there is a deeper level to get to. You need to get past these elementary principles, amen? You need to get past that because if you don't get past that, you'll never truly experience the full presence of God. But those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as Judas did, who have come to know the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, who know the Word of God, the Word of God gives you a stern warning. I want you to listen to this for the betrayer. For those who indulge in sin, who've tasted and seen that God is good, but, but they don't excuse sin, they just do it. Listen to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says, for it is impossible, everyone say impossible. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. 
And who then turn away from God? It is impossible. Everyone say impossible. To bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to a public shame. Here's the thing that once you choose to openly reject Jesus Christ after you've walked with him, it's impossible. And it is not impossible because of God. It's impossible because of the heart of the man. What you think about that? Nothing's impossible for God. It's impossible for that person, though. So if God's warning against a hard heart for someone who is coming to mature relationship with him, then what we need to do is we need to guard our heart daily. You can't ever walk through life just saying, man, I'm good. God walks with me. I've got no problems. Nothing can come against me. I'm fine. We have to seek God's face daily. We have to surrender to him daily. Church, it is not good enough to come here, have a great Sunday, and say, well, that'll fill me till next Sunday. Come on, man. Come on. You know, we had a good morning worship today, but it wasn't that good. Okay? And the reason I can say that is because God only gives you enough for today because he wants you to need him tomorrow. He wants to carry you throughout the week each and every day. There's no question. Jesus died for sinners like me. But every time we sin, and we touched on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, but every time we sin knowing who Jesus is, it openly mocks the very nature of which Christ died. So there are some of us that might sin when you accidentally hit your hand with a hammer. You let something come out that you didn't know was still in there. Times you get cut off on the road. That's not the sin I'm talking about. I want to be very clear. When we choose to indulge in sin knowing that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for that very purpose, we are mocking Him to an open shame. Church, I want to say this. See, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not going to live a perfect life. But we can't honor God and honor sin. At the same time. That's a house divided. That's a house divided and we can't have it. We need to have a heart that longs like God does. That we desire to sin no more. See, that is the heart of God. He longs that you desire to sin no more. The next thing I want to talk about today is he died for deniers. Jesus died for deniers. I want to read for you verses 15 through 18 of John chapter 18 and then verses 25 through 27. If you read the whole context, if you grab the whole context of, of John chapter 18, you will know that moments before this, Peter was defending Jesus and he cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. And then Jesus takes the ear, places it back on the head of that soldier and heals him. 
So Peter was just defending Jesus to those arresting him, and now he's going to get ready to deny him. Let's read John 18, 15 through 18. Then we're going to skip down to verse 25. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. Everyone say followed. followed. As did another of his disciples. This was believed to be John. Okay? So there's another disciple following him. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate. And she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it warming themselves and Peter stood with them warming himself. John bore witness to Peter's first denial. Skip down to verse 25. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, no, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. What do you think about Peter in the upper room? It's Passover. It was Palm Sunday the, 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 as they ushered in. For, for Passover, and Jesus was being praised and worshipped, and, and they're having a big meal together, and, and the, this great feast, and, and Peter is there, and you know, Peter, he is one of those that he boasts to be faithful to Jesus to the end. It's in John chapter 13, verse 37. He boasts to be faithful to him to the end, and then Jesus invited him to pray with him in the garden later. We read that last week. Jesus invites him to pray with him in the garden, and three separate times, Peter falls asleep and Jesus has to wake him up, right? And now what Peter has done, he has given into the pressures of the world and denied him three times. I want to give you a warning off Peter. Peter was a man who reacted based off his emotions. He was passionate, but he also sought to please people. And church, I'm going to warn you, this can be good and it can be bad because he was easily swayed from what he knew was right. So Peter denies Jesus three times, then immediately when the rooster crows after this third time of denying him, he had thought about what he had just did and he broke down and wept. And he, he, he didn't just deny Jesus at that moment, but he also betrayed his own beliefs just to fit in with those around him. And church, I am telling you, and I want you to receive this, Jesus died for those who deny him. He died for those who deny him. I don't know about you, but I've been on the receiving end of a friend pretending I didn't exist. You ever walk with a friend for a long period of time and then just the, the right person comes in the room and all of a sudden it's like, I, I don't know him. Wendy, please don't do that to me. But, but that, that, that friend, what he did was, he rejected me because all of a sudden the right crowd was there. 
See, I was the right crowd until they came. And in that moment, I, I, I felt the rejection and I felt used. And in the future, when he'd want to hang out, that's all that's in the back of my mind. It's like it just takes the right person to come along. He's going to walk out. Jesus not only told Peter he would do this, but once Peter did it, Jesus tested him after the resurrection. I want you to listen to this. We're skipping ahead in John. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. It says, After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And here's the life-changing moment for Peter. Because previously, Peter had just gone back to fishing. He had decided, that, you know that thing that I did for the last three years? Forget it. I'm going back to what I know. Peter was just fishing, sees Jesus. It's life-changing moment. And Jesus, recalling the three times Peter denied him, challenged him in this way. And it was life-changing. Because let me tell you something about this moment in Peter. About 40 days later, 40 to 50, Jesus has ascended. He's with the Father in heaven. And Jesus said, I want you to wait here because I am sending you the comforter. And these men and women waited in the upper room and, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit changed them and then Peter goes outside to the crowd that bore witness to what was going on in the room. Several thousand people. And Peter led 3,000 to the Lord that day, telling them they crucified the Savior of the world. Peter did not worry about pleasing the people or giving in to any state of emotions anymore. And he carried that with him until he was martyred on a cross similarly to his Savior. But he said, I'm not like him. Hang me upside down. Church, I want to be clear. There is no glory for God in you living your life openly for him only in church. And then presenting your life differently to the rest of the world. Either people do that, and, and I try to wrap my mind around it, either people do that because they never truly discovered Jesus or they're ashamed of him. We also get a stern warning from Jesus on if you're ashamed of him. It says in Luke 9, 26, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. 
We are here because we have accepted Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and life. And I believe that is why you are here today. And this is not, and I want to be clear, this should not be your proving ground of faith. The proving ground of faith is the world. It is amongst those that don't believe in him. And, the, and, and it is in that world that you will be given trials that you have to overcome with the Lord. And so what I'm going to tell you this place is for, it's for developing your understanding of God, putting it into practice, and when the world starts to come against you, you put that faith into action. Okay? Lastly, he died for truth. There's a rhetorical question. It's, it wasn't rhetorical. It seems rhetorical to me because I know Jesus Christ. There's a question asked by Pilate. He says, what is truth? And that's in John chapter 18, verses 36 through 38. We're going to read it. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so are you a king? Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came to this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what, that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime. Now there are three ways Pilate's response can be interpreted. It can be a cynical denial of knowing the truth. It could have been a jest at anything so impractical and abstract as truth. Or it could be a desire to know what no one had been able to tell him. Regardless of what Pilate meant when he said it, it is clear he found no fault in him and he saw the innocence of Jesus Christ. But Jesus stated, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who's, who hears the truth, who wants to know the truth, we hear his voice. And so this is why, church, I really honestly feel that Jesus is so relevant for today. Because the world, you might have noticed, if you, if you listen to the media, if you listen to anything that is coming out of Hollywood, anything that is coming out of Washington, D.C., we don't know whether to believe it is a truth or a lie. And it's been going that way forever, it seems. And it, it only seems to be getting more significant and so we hear all these things and we don't know where to turn to for truth so people have turned to let's live our own truth that's not God's truth and here's the thing that I have learned. It has to be God's truth. And so these younger generations, I truly believe, they are desperate for the truth because they haven't received it. They're more confused for, than ever before. And all they want is the truth. So you and I, we have to live for that. We have to live for truth. We have to die for truth. We have to operate in truth. And I am telling you that if you are here within the sound of my voice, you have heard the truth. And if you have sought out after God, he is going to give you everything you need. God is your supplier and he will take care of you. That doesn't mean that you're going to go home and say, God, 
Pastor said you're my provider. I'm expecting that million-dollar check in the mailbox, and it should be there. That's not what I'm saying. But to serve him, church, isn't a one-day event. It's not a -a two-day-a-week decision. It is a lifetime, an eternal commitment. Truth isn't something you just receive one day, and you're like, you know what? I'm changed forever. You walk out of here and say, man, that pastor changed my life. I'm just going to go enjoy the rest of my life. I'm moving to an island in the Caribbean. I'm good till Jesus takes me home. And some of you are saying, pastor, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) But once you hear the truth and it changes your life, you seek the truth daily. Because here's the thing. The deceiver is going to come along. He's going to come along, and he's going to try and trick you to what you know is true. And he's going to try and change your mind. And that is why you need to seek the truth daily. Listen to John chapter 8, 31 through 32. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful. Everyone say faithful. If you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You have to remain faithful to the truth in your life. You have to let it change you. Because that enemy is lurking. He's lurking. He knows your weakness. He knows your hang-ups. He has the right lure. And I'm telling you, church, as I close, you cannot find yourself in a half-hearted relationship with God. You need to commit to His truth and seek that change for your life. And it's got to change you daily. You don't have to dress yourself up for God. You don't have to pretend that you are something you are not. He accepts you where you are at. So I don't want Christians to come in here and pretend they're something they're not. I don't want them to say, oh, pastor, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I've kept my nose out of trouble, that's for sure. And we dress ourselves up a certain way because I don't want anyone to know. God meets you where you're at. And he meets you as you are at that moment. And he wants to walk with you daily. Hear from this moment forward. And I promise you when you choose to do that, it's not that you're going to change God and he's going to adapt to you. It's that God is going to change you when you start introducing that truth in your life regularly. God changes you. So the key for you is this. Just hear his voice and accept his truth. It's that simple. We overcomplicate it sometimes, church. We make it, we make it so difficult. If we just choose to say, God, I hear you, I surrender, your will is my will. I'm telling you, God can use you. He can use a willing vessel. But here's the thing. 
You have to surrender everything. It's not you saying, man, pastor, I surrendered today. You guys surrender every day. Surrender every day. And so what I want you to do is I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you are here right now, you know, we have had our moments at the altar, but there's one more work that I believe we need to do. If you say, Pastor, I need to surrender my life daily. I feel the conviction from the Holy Spirit, and I need to surrender my my life daily. If that is you, I ask that you stand with me. And understand, as you stand, I'm already standing. I'm part of that. And what I believe, I believe God works through surrender. And one of the signs of surrender is opening yourself up to Him. And I'm going to tell you, when you do that physically, it changes something spiritually. Because many people say, I don't have to do that to open myself up spiritually. But sometimes we have to tell the flesh where it belongs. Are you hearing me? You have to tell the flesh sometimes what it needs to do. So as I pray, what I want you to do is, I want you to just open your arms up to God. Father God, you see this man standing here, God. Lord, you see these men and women standing here. And God, our arms are open to you. And God, it is our sign of surrender that, Lord, we are open to do your work. We are open for you to come in and flood us with your presence. God, we are open to surrender every aspect of our life over to you and be that willing vessel for you each and every day. And so, God, I pray that in this room, lives will be transformed, lives will be changed. And it won't be changed just by this moment, Father, but it is going to be changed by a daily surrender unto you. So, God, God, you see these vessels that are here right now. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you pour out in the mighty name of Jesus Christ because we cannot be satisfied with the mundane. We cannot be satisfied with what this world is giving us, God. But we need you. We need your truth. And we need to walk with you daily, Father. Lord, it is in you that is good, and there is nothing else under the sun that is good that is not of you. And so, God, I pray that we will go home and we will take this action to get rid of the stumbling blocks in our life, Father. We will get rid of the things that trip us up because, God, we want a clear path to you. And so, Lord, I pray that these people will be steadfast in the commitments that they're making, that God, we can't do this half-hearted. God, we have to have our heart on our sleeve like Peter did the day that he saw those thousands of people gathered outside on the day of Pentecost. And he said, you know what? Those people need to hear the truth. God, may we not be satisfied anymore with this world and what it has to offer. Lord, may we only find satisfaction in you. God, I thank you for these men and women. God, I thank you for them opening up. And Lord, I know you meet them where they're at. And Lord, I know that once we claim the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, over our lives, Lord, his blood washes away our sin. And I praise you for that, God. Lord, there is is no one that can do what you can do. And Lord... We as free men and women praise you right now. 
In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, everyone give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning.